0: Well, we're going to continue our little foray into the Psalms this morning. I'm going to begin with a story. There's a story told of two Californians who went to Minnesota one winter to do some ice fishing. And after setting up their tent, they pulled a cord on the chainsaw to cut a hole in the ice And when they shut off the saw, they heard a mysterious voice from above saying, There are no fish under the ice. And they startled, one of them said in awe, Is is that you, God? No, came the reply. But I know there are no fish under the ice. I am the owner of the ice skating rink. It's a great illustration. For the psalm that we're going to look at this morning. It's a great illustration for people who look for answers in life in places that they can't find answers. Many people set up religious tents and go through sacred motions of cutting holes in the ice through all different types of of religious services and machinations, and no matter how long they fish... (laughs) No matter how long the tent stays there, no matter how long they fish for answers, then in the end they're not going to find any because there's no fish under the ice. There are no answers in the direction that they turn because there, there is only one God, and that's the God of, of the Bible. And last Sunday in Psalm 116, we learned how precious we are to God. We we looked at Psalm 116 and said realizing that will intensify your, your love through prayer. When, when you remember, when you realize through the answered prayer of, of, of God that you, you realize how precious you are to Him. And, and that just causes your love to intensify. Realizing how precious you are to God will inform your praise by faith. You are able to praise God to the extent that you know God the more that you know about Him. The more that you know about how precious you are to Him, the more it will inform your your praise. You will be like David, you know, who said, who is man that you're even mindful of Him? And then, ultimately, it will increase your service because of His grace. Um, The psalmist says, and he declares, I mean, in light of who you are, in light of the fact that you answer my prayers, in light of the fact that you pay attention to me, you know, what can I, what can I give to you? What can I, what can I use to repay you? And the answer obviously is nothing. And so all we can do, we can't repay God for our salvation. All we can do is serve Him. All we can do is just, is just give our lives to Him in, in what little ways that we can. This morning I, I want, I want you to realize the flip side to that. Not how precious you are to God, but how precious God is. And that's found in Psalm 115. So I want you to open your Bibles there. This morning I want you to realize how precious God is. Our God, the God of the Bible, is the only God that that you must worship. He is the only God that you can trust, and He is the only one that... That truly blesses. We read Psalm 115 last week as our scripture reading, but we're going to read it again and I'm going to give you the exposition. I'm going to start on it this morning and probably finish it tonight before the Lord's Supper. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. Glory. To your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the the Gentiles or the nations say, so where is their God? But our God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of men's hands. They have mouths and they do not speak. Eyes. They have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their their throat. Those who make them become like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Oh, Israel trust in the Lord. He is... Their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Those who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed "...by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven and even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord." Psalm 115 teaches the the futility of idols... It teaches the futility of, of fishing for the answers of life on an ice skating rink. It, it also teaches the trustworthiness of, of God. And it does so by, by declaring to us how precious God is. The idolaters of Israel's day worked hard at, at practicing their, their religion, just like you can go and find people who practice religion. Have, have you heard the statement? Have you ever made the statement? When you look at a Jehovah's Witness, wow, they are really dedicated people. When I was flying out of, of Lynchburg on Monday, there was a there was a, a Mormon who was getting ready to get on the get on the airplane, and and I knew that because he had his little badge there that said you know Elder what's his face, and and he had his white shirt and the tie. Two years they they give usually between their high school years and their college, if at least the, the ones who are serious or dedicated, and they'll go out for two years and, and they'll go to a different place and they will, they will serve for the purpose of, of, of religion. In Israel's day, the, the idolaters spent a lot of effort in, in their idolatry. They spent exorbitant sums of money overlaying professionally carved idols with gold, and and then they would craft silver chains that would go around them. Isaiah chapter 40 describes that to us. They would bow down and worship what they had constructed with their own hands, as Psalm 115 tells us in just a moment. And yet, while all of that activity is there, all of that effort is there, there's nothing there. The effort of human beings doesn't make anything... Increase on the backside of the idol. It, it doesn't, there's nothing there. They appear to be worshiping God, but their worship is, is as futile as our illustration. And while times and religions have changed, people have not, have they? Today, people turn in, in many different directions to find the answers of life. Some turn to pleasure, some turn to other people, some turn to gurus, some turn to religion, some turn to power some termed chemicals, and all of them are replacements and counterfeits for the one true and living God. They, like the idols of old, all of those things, they, they have mouths that can't speak, they have eyes that can't see, they, they have ears, but, but they can't hear us call, they, they can't do anything for us. The world's gods are powerless, but our God rules over all. If you turn to Him, He can not only give you the answers for life, He can give you the answers to to life after life. Our God can never be reduced to an image of, of man's own making. He is the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth. And He wants us to worship Him. And so He declares to us here three reasons... To follow or to give glory to to God alone. There are four sections to this psalm. We're going to cover the first three because that's really the take home part. What what we can apply to to our life. The the fourth section I'll mention tonight. But but really there are three reasons. And I hope you picked up as as we were walking through the psalm, you can almost hear the natural breaks with the repetition of the words. He is the only God you must worship, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto, unto your name we give glory. In verses 1 through 8, he, the psalmist declares to us, He is the only God you must worship. This is not an option. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is what? Lord. And you'll do that now under your salvation, or you'll do that one day under your damnation, but you, every human being, American, Chinese, Nepalese, person living in Gaza, Jew in Israel, everyone, one day will declare and will give worship and honor to the one true and living God, regardless of who or what they worship now. And this psalm gives us the reason. Follow God alone. He is the only God you must worship. In verses 9 through 11, He's the only God you can trust. Here, o, o Israel, trust in the Lord. Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, that's you, trust in the Lord. And He is the only God that you will receive blessing from. He's the only God who blesses. You don't serve God for His blessings. You serve God because He's God and because He's worthy of your worship and because you can trust Him, but, but that God does bless. Verse 12 through verse 15, The Lord has been mindful of us. Verse 12, He, he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel, bless the house of Aaron. You, and you can go on. You can see that whole theme of, of blessing there. And when you put all those things together, you'll see how precious God is and and those are reasons to, to turn from your idols and turn to follow God alone. Let's look at the first one. He is the only God you must worship or give glory to. Look at verse 1. Look at how the psalm starts. He says, Not unto us, O Yahweh, O Lord, not unto us. He repeats that twice. But to your name give the glory. Not unto us, O God. Not unto us. After the battle of Agincourt, France on October 25th, my birthday, and I believe Jeff's birthday, October 25th, 1415. King Henry V commanded his victorious troops to kneel and sing the first verse of this psalm. Non nobis domini, which is Latin for not unto us, O God. King Henry was saying, while we are victorious, the glory doesn't come to us. It comes to you. On another occasion, probably more familiar to you, William Wilberforce Upon the passing of the bill to abolish slavery, quoted this psalm, non nobis domini, not unto us, O God, not unto us, but unto your name be, be the glory. And the opening verse of this psalm sets the stage for the entire, for the entire section, the entire passage, twice repeating, not unto us. It's, it's there for emphasis. Glory, worship, honor doesn't come to the creature, it comes to the creator. It doesn't go to you, it goes to, it goes to God. The opening verse, the writer's point is, is the spotlight should be upon God, not upon us. And he goes on to tell us why in verses 2 through 8. It's because he's worthy. Because he'll share his glory with no one. Because He does whatsoever He pleases and because all other gods are powerless. He is the only God you must worship because He is worthy. Because He will share His glory with no one. He is a jealous God because He does whatsoever He pleases. He is sovereignly good. And because all the other gods are are powerless. Look at verse 1 again. Not unto us, O Lord, but not unto us, but to your name give glory. We're to give glory, we're to give honor. We're to to worship God's name because He is worthy. Giving glory to God's name is another way of of saying we give glory or we give honor to God's character or His reputation. Glorify God. How do you glorify God? We saw last week that to the extent in which you can praise God, is directly related to what you know about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. John Piper said the glory of God is His holiness gone public. You you see in Isaiah, when Isaiah gets a picture, gets a view into the throne room of God, he sees the the statement, holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord. You see Ezekiel, this this picture of the of the glory of God, like smoke bellowing from his throne. It's the idea of who God is going public. And the heavens declare the glory of God, God's greatness, His power has gone public in creation. When you look up into the stars at at night, if you pay attention, you'll be in awe. You'll be like, "Wow, look at the power! Look at the majesty! Look at the beauty!" of of god it's his ability it's his it's his reputation gone gone public he's he's worthy when you look at at your own salvation what god has accomplished for you how he saved you from your sin you see god's character and his reputation he is the covenant keeping god notice the word that he uses for for god he's not unto us, O Lord, L-O-R-D, it's it's Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God who is worthy of glory because He keeps His promises. He identifies the attributes that make God worthy of His glory. Look at the second half of the, of the verse. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name, your reputation, who you are, give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Do you see that? He gives us two reasons there that God is worthy. God is steadfast in his love, and he's trustworthy. That's not the only reason that God is worthy. There's plenty of other attributes. God would be worthy of worship for his justice alone, for his wrath alone. But here he draws our attention to his mercy. God is steadfast in his love for you, and he is trustworthy. In Exodus 34 verse 6 is this, this pivotal section in the Old Testament where God reveals himself shows his glory to Moses. You know the passage where Moses says, "Let me let me see your glory." And God reveals himself and the glory of God passes by Moses and God protects Moses from from being able to to see his glory and be consumed. And, and what does God declare about himself in Exodus 34 it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the word here for mercy. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. He uses the same words. Psalm 63.3 says, God's steadfast love, God's mercy, God's loyal love is better than life. It would be it's it's better to have this mercy of God, this loyal love, this covenant-keeping love of God than it is to live, because life is really short. But the benefits of God's covenant-keeping love goes far beyond the grave. The Hebrew word that's used here is you've heard before is hesed. It's it's His mercy or steadfast love. It's His loyal love. You'll see it translated a bunch of different ways because. There's no English word that adequately describes it. Here it's, it's mercy. And that's a loaded term. Essentially, it means a commitment of faithfulness that's not able to be broken. And it's deeply relational. God gives the, the, the picture of Israel, his relationship to Israel to, to give us a, a way to understand it. I mean, when you look at the life of Israel and you see how unworthy Israel is and over and over and over, God, God remains faithful to Israel. He keeps His covenant to Israel. He, He, He draws Israel back. He chastens Israel when Israel turns away. That's all for us to get an understanding of, of, of God's covenant-keeping love and His commitment to you. It's who He is. It's what He does. It's what He does for His people. And here, the psalmist says He's worthy. You give you don't take glory yourself or give it to the creature, you give it to the Creator because, because of his commitment, his faithfulness, his loyalty that's deeply relational to, to you. I mean, we try to say it this way when we when we're witnessing to somebody, we say it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. But that relationship is with God, and that and that God is a covenant keeping God. He's made a commitment to you in Christ, and he won't break that commitment. He's faithful. It's the it's the commitment of God to us as His people. That's what this word mercy means. And it's based on His promise, not on anything in you or, or because of you. Now let that sink in for a minute. God's commitment to you. I think it's hard for us to grasp this term because we're human beings, but also because we, we live around other human beings. Can you think of somebody who... Who has broken their commitment to you? I mean, politicians do it on a daily basis, don't they? Maybe think of somebody that you, that's more dear to you than politicians. (laughs) Think of your children who make a commitment and say, Mommy, Daddy, I will, I will, I will obey you, I will follow you, I will do what you tell me to do, and then they go break your heart. Think of an even deeper commitment in, in, in marriage or, or, or a brother or a sister or a, a deep friend where they make a commitment to you. That commitment may even be public. They may have every intention of keeping it and yet your hopes are dashed because they break it. It's hard for us to grasp. But God here and in other places declares that He has made a commitment to you. Do you think God keeps His commitments? Is there anything that would cause God not to keep His commitment? And the answer is no, based on this word. Because God's commitment to you has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with who you are, how good you are, whether you sin, whether you don't sin. His commitment to you is in Christ. You're in the Father's hand. And no man can pluck you from the Father's hand. Romans says it uh, in a different way. What shall separate you from the love of Christ? And it gives a list. And, and in the end of the list, there's nothing. <laughs> On any power or anything that you do or anyone else does, if that commitment is there. A beautiful illustration of of hased of this love, is is found in in part one of Jared Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the of the Ring. There's this scene in the movie where it's it's getting hard of Mr. Frodo is is realizing that he's the one who has to be the ring bearer and he's trying to leave. And you know he gets in that he gets in that little boat and he shoves off. He's trying to leave without Samwise Gamgee, you know, his 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 faithful friend. And as the boat goes off, Samwise is standing on the bank and he, and he sees Frodo leaving and 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 he and he has this thought he, he can't swim. And yet, you've seen the movie, you've read the book, you see what he does. He walks right out into the middle of the water and goes under and and starts to drown. And and Frodo rescues him and pulls him into the boat where he's at. And Frodo pulls him into the boat and basically says, What are you doing? You can't swim. And, And Samwise says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise... Don't you leave him, Samwise? And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I mean he made a commitment to fulfill a promise to his friend, and no matter what the cost, even to his well-being, he was going to he was going to keep it. A biblical example is Ruth. Ruth embodies the covenant faith covenant faithfulness and loyalty in her commitment to Naomi. Ruth one sixteen through seventeen. Ruth said. Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. There's a biblical example of a human being trying to keep what what God has described here. The reason that we use those verses in marriage is because marriage is supposed to be an illustration of Hesed that God's built into creation. That's why marriage is a picture of Christ in His church. Christ has covenant faithfulness. He's made a commitment to His church and to you as part of His church, and He will not break that no matter what. And the ultimate demonstration of God's commitment to us is found in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? The promise that God made in the garden, we've been seeing in the foundation series, was to remove the curse of sin and redeem us, and that's what Jesus came to, to accomplish. In spite of who we are, Jesus gave His own life as part of His commitment to you. He fulfilled His promise no matter the cost to His own well-being. Did it cost Christ something to keep his commitment to you? You better believe it did. And the Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's why you can't be lost. And your sin, no matter how much you commit, will never break your relationship with God. Oh, it might destroy your fellowship with him, but it's not going to break your relationship because it's not based on your sin or your righteousness, but His commitment to you. And you can trace God's loyalty and faithfulness all through the Old Testament. And because of that, He is worthy. I mean, when you really think about that, and you really think about the fact that God is committed to you no matter what, does that not cause you to want to praise Him? To be thankful to Him? You know when I'm most thankful for that? When I fall flat on my face in sin. When I'm lifted up in pride and I'm keeping my little rules and I think I'm doing pretty good, then, then, then the glory of God in this, in, this, in this area kind of diminishes. But when I'm laying flat on my face saying, God, forgive me again, and God reminds me of His said His, His commitment to me in Christ, that's when I say, Not unto me, but unto you, O Lord, I give you praise and, and glory. He's, he's worthy. And he'll also share that that glory with 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 no one else, the second point. He will share his glory with no one. Not unto us, not unto us, is repeated twice. It's to emphasize us. God is, and he speaks he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and because of who God is, he is worthy to receive glory. But mankind wants to get glory, not give it, right? I mean, think about all the religions in the world. They don't have any problem giving God some credit as long as they take some credit as well. <laughs> they have no problem mentioning Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons in the, in the introduction this morning. They have no problem with saying that, that Jesus will provide a way to the Father as long as they can add their works to it. The religions of the world have no problem, and people have no problem, following the religions of the world, praying five times a day, or going to Mecca, or, or spinning to prayer wheels, or, or reaching enlightenment, and eating paste, and meditating, and contorting their bodies. They have no problem doing that, no matter how difficult it is. Because what they're doing is trying to make God a debtor. God owes me. For what I'm doing. I, I, God, you I'm going to keep these rules, I'm going to fulfill these works, and because of that, when I get to heaven, I'll stand before you and I'll be able to take some some credit for that. Does God share his credit in salvation with anyone? He shares his glory with, with no one. The works of the law could never redeem you because they can't change the heart. Keeping the law doesn't change. The heart, but even the way of salvation, is by grace alone. The basic issue of our sin nature is mankind wants to get glory, not give glory. People want to take credit themselves and not give honor to God. How hard is it not to defend yourself? It goes back to the first sin ever committed when Satan wanted to rise above the throne of the Most High. And just like God cast Satan down, he'll not stand by forever and allow people to steal his glory. You want a biblical example? Acts Chapter 12, verse 22. They'll bring it up on the screen for you here. It's an example of what happens to men, how God responds when men try to take glory that belongs to Him alone. Now, God doesn't do this all the time, or there wouldn't be a human being sitting here. We'd all be fried, right? because we've all stolen glory from God at one point. But just like with Ananias and Sapphira, when God judged sin in the church very dramatically, there are times whenever God intervenes just to remind us and emphasize a point. He's emphasizing a point here in Acts 12. It's a good example. King Herod, dressed in his royal apparel, delivered a speech to an audience... And the audience was eager to win his favor. He gets up to speech. Oh, just how, how amazing. Is our society not set up that way? You turn anything on, it's, it's, it's the praise of man. The crowd said in their flattering response, this is the voice of God. This is the voice of a God, not a man. And the fear and all of the one true and living God which Herod knew, he knew about, should have led him to protest, but he didn't. He received. And it says immediately in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. And he suffered an excruciating death because of his lack of reverence for God. Help. Punishment, eternal torment, is ultimately because men refuse to give the glory due to the Creator. What's due to His name? He failed to give glory to God. Just two chapters later in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas show how he should have responded. They have such a great reverence for God that they nearly panicked at the thought of being worshipped. Be careful with the praise of men. It says, now when the people saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in their language, the gods had come down to us in the likeness of men, and, and Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief priest chief speaker and then the the priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of the city. They brought oxen and garland to the gates and they intended to sacrifice for the multitudes. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran among the multitude, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? And that should be the attitude in our hearts. We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that are in them. Paul, Barnabas, they do something miraculous. They heal a man who'd been crippled from birth, and and the onlookers shout, The gods have come down in the likeness of men, and they prepare to offer sacrifices and and the apostles tore the clothes and ran to the multitude and said, Why are you doing that? Don't give glory to me. Not unto us, but unto the Lord be the glory. Two examples. Be careful. The praise of men, be careful. I want you to, be, to notice in both of those illustrations that there are two parties There's the person who was receiving the glory and then there was the crowd that was giving the glory. People will freely give you glory and praise. Some of which, some of the honor may be be because you did something good. It, It may not be fake. I mean, Paul and Barnabas here had done a great work. They were the vessel of God to accomplish something wonderful but it was the perspective of the heart, it was the attitude of the heart of the individual that either brought the judgment of God or kept the judgment of God from falling. Herod received their praise and he was struck down. Paul and Barnabas ripped their clothes and said, Not unto us. God gives a solemn call to give him reverence. He is the one worthy of glory and praise and honor because he is the only one who merits our worship. We think too much of ourselves when we think too little of God. During World War II, Harry Truman became president of the United States when Franklin Delano Roosevelt died. And Truman said he felt as if a great weight had been dropped upon him and he asked people to pray for him. It's said that one of his old colleagues, Sam Rayburn, tried to help him be humble when he said, they'll tell you you're a great man, Harry, but you and I both know you ain't. Nothing like the truth of a friend to give you some perspective, right? But he's right. It doesn't matter whether you're the President of the United States or a ditch digger in West Virginia. You both have the capacity to glorify God and neither of you deserve the glory of God. There are no truly great men or great women, only a great God who enables them. And that's your perspective. Realizing that will help you overcome envy, when others are praised, then it will keep you from becoming proud when somebody tells you how great you are. <laughs> well, the Bible says give honor to whom honor is due. That doesn't mean that we pretend that God doesn't use people. It's the attitude of your heart when you receive that. Do you deflect it? Do you do exactly what you'll do when you stand before the beam of seat of Christ, when the rewards are doled out? Will you take those crowns and cast them back at the, the Lord's feet? Or when you receive the praise of men now, will you receive that praise and pat yourself on the back? If you do, the New Testament tells us you have your reward. (laughs) And it's the praise of men. And I'd much rather have the praise of God. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf of the Moravian Church that launched a missions movement in the 1700s said his life was but to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay if nobody remembered who you are? Would you be okay if you weren't part of a great church or you didn't make it to the next level in your job? Would you be okay if nobody knew who you were or what you did for the kingdom? Would you be alright with that? Would you be alright if God received the glory alone? That all you did was preach the gospel, died and be forgotten i'm afraid that a lot of people are under the delusion that you're going to be remembered (laughs) i mean most of the time as far as human beings are concerned your greatest remembrance will be what's what's chiseled out on your tombstone and people usually don't even go back and look at that there will be some who are written in the history books but the history books will fail one day The attitude of the heart. Do you secretly want to take God's glory for yourself? Not I but Christ be honored, loved, and exalted. Not I but Christ be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action. Not I but Christ in every thought and word. That's the attitude. Let's look at the third in verse 3. We should give glory to God alone because He does whatsoever He pleases. This is what I'm saying. He's, he's declared here as sovereignly good. And notice what happens here. He is the only God you must worship because He does whatsoever He pleases. Look at verse 2. Now pay attention to the words here. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven And he does whatsoever he pleases. Here's an accusation in verse 2 from unbelievers. And there's an answer from the faithful in verse 3. Here's the accusations. The Gentiles say, where is their God? And verse 3, here's the answer. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. The accusation and the answer. The heathens taunt and mocked Israel when it seemed like they were losing when bad things happened. And when we fall or fail, unbelievers say, Where's their God now? Huh? The Bible doesn't work too well for you right now, does it? That's what they say. And they love to say that because it props themselves up. But the believer says by faith in verse 3, look at even the way the question is stated in verse 2. Why should the Gentiles say? Why did he even say that? Our God is in the heavens and He does whatsoever He pleases. That's the declaration by faith. you see the conclusion? Do you you see the contrast here between a believer and an unbeliever? An unbeliever looks at circumstances and, and, and interprets God and causes doubt. Causes doubt in their hearts for God. But our circumstances don't lead us to doubt God. We see every single atom under His powerful hand. He does whatsoever He pleases, and whatever He pleases is good. This is what he's saying. Do you think God was being good whenever Israel pursued other gods and He allowed them to be overtaken by foreign powers? Yeah, God was being good. You think God is being good whenever He chastens you and doesn't give you or me our sin that we desire? Yeah, He's being good. And yet, when you fall flat on your face and consequences come in your life, the unbelievers say, where's your God now? Oh, that's great. I thought he was supposed to bless you. And what do you say? He is blessing me. He's blessing me by chastening me and not giving me the sin that I've pursued after in my own heart. James applies to the same point when he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you, when you enter into many different types of trials. Why can you count it all joy? Because you like trials? No, because your God is in the heavens and He does whatsoever He pleases. God will take those trials in your life and force them to obey for His work in you, maturity. Are, do you get stronger through, through ease or through difficulty? Now, you know the answer. And so for the difficulty, you count it all joy when you go through that trial, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience or endurance. And when that has its completed work, it brings forth maturity. We know that God is in control and He's good. Look at this quote by Derek Kidner about these two verses. It says The pagan's pride in what he can see and his contempt in what he cannot is flung back at him. A God too great to tie down to any image or even earth itself, is not the prisoner of circumstances, but the master. I love that line. God's not the prisoner of circumstances. He's the master of circumstances. And that is a God to glory in. Then the writer takes a closer look at the pagans' so-called gods. Look, if you would, at verse 4. We should give glory to God alone because all other gods are powerless. Lastly, our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever He pleases. He's sovereignly good. But now let's look at the pagan's gods, the, one who's, the ones who say, well, so where is their God? Where the, where's Yahweh? Verses 4 through 7, He gives this scathing catalog of the gods of the worlds, The gods of the world. After saying, the one who can does, he declares that those who can't don't. You know why philosophies of the world just keep regurgitating themselves over and over and over? You know why why feminism was the big thing and now it's fallen flat on its face and replaced with something, something new? Because it didn't work. Just ask the feminists that bought into it. They'll tell you it didn't work. Ask the ones who are, who are coming to the end of their life without a family, without children, without any type of blessing whatsoever, and they've spent their life on themselves, and they'll tell you that the philosophy of the world didn't work. It's because it doesn't work. And if, you, if you're lucky to live long enough, you'll realize that the gods of the world don't work. They're just exactly like they're described here. But not everyone's that fortunate, are they? Some die in the midst of serving those gods, searching for... For answers. These passages really don't need a whole lot of explanation. The facts are enough. Look at verse four. Their their idols are silver and gold, and here's the point, they're the work of men's hands. I've joked before about being in Nepal and you go to the little shrine to the little temple and the little pile of the little bowl is there of rice paste, red and yellow. To be able to put on your forehead to show that you've worshipped that day and there's a bell there to wake the God up. I've joked before, if you've got to wake the God up to tell Him you're there, He's not worth serving to begin with. Look at what it says here. These idols of silver or gold are the works of men's hands. Do you want to serve a God that you can make? Be careful, because it's... You do that not just with little silver and gold idols, but with the God that you create in your own mind by rebelling against the Scriptures. They're the works of human hands. You can stop there. Who wants to worship a God that's created by another man? Paul Harvey said the greatest scientist who ever lived admits we cannot create so much as a worm, and yet we manufacture gods on a daily basis. It's absolutely true. We can't create anything. Anything that we create, even the even the, the greatest scientific advances, we take material that's already there and we blend it together, we synthesize it. The writer goes on. They have mouths but they do not speak. Eyes they do not see, ears that don't hear, noses that don't smell, hands that don't feel, feet that don't walk, throats but they don't make a sound. Bilbaric said, So which should a sane person trust in, the sovereign creator of all things or manufactured idols? Trust in anything other than the God of the Bible is like fishing on a skating rink. You have the poles and a lot of activity. No matter how long you you sit there, how dedicated you are, you won't catch fish because there's no fish there. No matter how long you look in these directions, you'll get no answers because they have no mouths, no eyes, no ears. But Jesus is not a lifeless idol. He's the living God and He speaks. Did you notice what's repeated in the list? Look at verse 5. They have mouths, but they do not speak. And look at verse 7. Look at the end of verse 7. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Mouth and throat. That's what's repeated. Like bookends. You know why that's there? He's emphasizing the fact that the idols don't speak in contrast to the God of heaven who speaks in the beginning. God speaks, doesn't he? And the world was. Hear, O Israel. Hear what? The voice of the Lord. He speaks every time the Bible is is opened. What is the centerpiece of Christian worship? What's the centerpiece of the gathering of the saints? To hear the word of the Lord. Why? Because God speaks. He's spoken to you. He's spoken to you in His errant, infallible word. He speaks and says, I am Lord, believe me and you'll never die. God creates by His Word. Frank Gabriel said the silent idols could not grunt, peep, or whistle. The human cry of baby Jesus surpassed all that the idols could do. <laughs> but He does much more than cry like a baby, doesn't He? He roars like a lion. He proclaims to you His gospel and His truth. And the writer ends this whole section with the curse that befalls anyone who looks to the world's gods. Look at this curse, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So does everyone who trusts in them. You know what the ultimate curse to befall idolaters is? You know what the ultimate curse It's found in Romans 1 as well as here. You know the worst judgment God could give you, give mankind? No judgment at all. The worst thing that God could do for you is leave you alone and leave you in your own sin. Do you know why homosexuality is so bad, so depraved? It's the ultimate expression of worshipping the creature rather than the Creator. Man ultimately worships himself, not God. And when you worship even the same sex, it's, it's, an, it's the ultimate. I mean, you're worshiping yourself in any sin. But you find in that same-sex attraction, you find an even greater expression of self-worship. And that's why it's an abomination to the Lord. And the ultimate curse to befall idolaters, the ultimate curse to fall the Buddhists, the ultimate curse to fall the to fall to the atheist, the ultimate curse to fall to the philosopher, is that they will become just like their idol. They will become just as blind, deaf, dumb, and dead as the idols they worship. And those without Christ are already in that condition. But you don't have to follow dead things. A believer follows a living God who speaks and he or she is then predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm very thankful I'm not going to stay the way that I am, aren't you? If you see something in me, you see something in your spouse, you see something somewhere that you don't like, praise God if they're a Christian, they won't remain that way. One day, we will be made like the Lord Jesus. And what a day that will be. And no matter where you look, if it's not unto Christ, you'll find silence. And there are no answers anywhere other than from Him. So why don't you stop looking around and start looking to Him? He loves you. And His love will never fail, no matter what you do or who you are or anything else, because He's made a commitment to you. And because of that, He's precious and worthy.